Okay. Good morning and happy Sabbath. I really believe that God is on the move and we are seeing the signs of the times everywhere and I have seen God working in the lives of the members of this church. Um, and this is a good thing because the Christian life should be a continual demonstration of the redeeming power of Jesus. Amen. A continual demonstration. And sometimes, you know, if I reflect on my own life, there's been those moments where it hasn't exactly been that demonstration, right? Um, sometimes we, we can have a bit more of that roller coaster Christian experience where sometimes we're just on fire for God, and at other times we may be claiming to be a Christian, but we're kind of socially or physically distanced from God is a term that has become kind of controversial over the past two years. But I think you get the point that sometimes... Though we may profess to be one thing, we may not always truly be what we profess to be. Let's see if I can get this going. Okay, good. We're ready to go. The reality is I don't have to speak for you. I can really just speak for myself and I can declare what the Bible plainly tells us. The Bible says that I am wretched miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and I don't even know it. Like that's, that's the human condition. I'm wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But, but the real problem is I think that I'm actually rich and in need of nothing. I think I'm just fine. But this is how the Bible describes us. And what it tells us is that, you know, it's not the skeptic that is doing the greatest damage to Christianity and to, to the cause of Christ. It's not the atheist. It's not the worldling or any other person that hurts the cause of God most. It's the supposedly redeemed Christian who in life denies Christ rarely bothering to share the redeeming love of Jesus with others. It's that baptized Christian that, you know, may even be faithful in going to church every week, but doesn't want to get out of their comfort zone, except for on the rare occasion that does the most damage to the cause of Christ. It's the lukewarm Christian that God wants to spew out of his mouth, vomit out of his mouth. God, God would rather you were cold in the world doing whatever over being someone that says you're a follower of Christ, but hasn't allowed that love to transform your life. And I think we can all relate to that. And really what makes us lukewarm is, is, is if we're being honest, and I've shared this before, at moments we're hot, at moments we're on fire for God, and at moments we're cold, and when you mix that all together, you get this lukewarm experience with God. And it's Christianity like this that has led men and women and world leaders to say things like the following, or you've heard this before, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And while hypocrisy prevails within the church, we should never excuse ourselves or think it wise to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. For as our good friend Kenny has pointed out, Jesus had a custom. He had a habit. He had a tradition. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He was always worshiping with the children of God, despite the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus is our example. So let us not embrace hypocrisy, but rather let us embrace Jesus and be liberated from any hypocrisy that may exist in our lives. Let's pray as we delve deeper into the study this morning. Father God, as we continue to dive into your word, I ask that you would be present, that you would speak to us, and that you would help us to understand your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How many of you guys have a favorite vegetable? Anybody? What's your favorite vegetable? Broccoli. Okay, Manny's vegetable is, is broccoli. Anybody else? Cabbage. 
There's a lot you can do with cabbage. There's a lot you can do with cabbage. Why? Cauliflower. Cauliflower. Are you telling the truth? Because I was at your house just the other week, and I, I don't think you wanted the cauliflower that mom had made. I'm having a moment of honesty here this morning. Kinley. Asparagus? Man, asparagus, that's a good one. Anybody else? Is it, is it Manny's asparagus? Because, like, Manny and Debbie, they bring some good asparagus. Go ahead, Mason. Broccoli. Broccoli, okay. So we've got two people for broccoli this morning. Okay, anybody else? Carrots. Carrots? Donald? What? Beans. Beans. Okay, so there's one thing that I haven't heard this morning. It's Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Now, Brussels sprouts is kind of one of those vegetables where either you love it or you hate it. In fact, uh, there used to be this little market stand in Pike's Place, Pike's Place Market in, in uh, Washington State called Little Green Balls of Death. Now, the avid lover of Brussels sprouts would argue that as long as you season it right, they're great. But most people could care less for Brussels sprouts, it's kind of one of those things, you love it or you hate it. Cilantro is another one of those things. People either love it or they hate it. There's not really a lot of people that are kind of like that middle ground. What about Christianity? What if it had that right seasoning, that right flavor, the right touch of the love of Jesus? How many more people would be attracted to the consistent Christian life filled with Jesus? Now, I've got a question for us to ponder this morning. It's not about favorite vegetables anymore. It's an interesting question to get our minds thinking this morning as we delve deeper into the Scriptures. What do good Christians do? What do good Christians do? Just shout it out. I'm not really looking for a right or a wrong answer here, but what do you think? What are some good things that good Christians do? Love. Okay, they love. Very good. That's like the key ingredient. They help others. Okay, very good. Anything else? What is, might be in that checkbox list, which we're not supposed to be having a checkbox list, but we're just trying this this morning. Go ahead. Spend time with God. Spend time with God. Okay, so they, they, they get up in the morning and they read their Bibles. Okay, Kenley. Pray. They pray. Okay, so we pray. We read our Bibles. We help others. We love others. Anything else in that list? Church. We go to church. Okay. Anything else? Bible Do Bible studies? Kenley? Read the, Read the Bible? Okay. Kind of filling in a good list. There might be a couple other things that we might add in there. Anybody else? Okay. So if you have your Bibles, let's open to the book of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. Now Matthew is one of those interesting Gospels because every single one of the four Gospels, they each have their own characteristics and distinct perspective. Matthew was a tax collector, so Matthew cared about the details. So when we come to the book of Matthew, you're going to find that he focuses more on the fulfillment of prophecies. When you come to the Gospel of Mark, Mark was a follower, a disciple of Peter after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Mark's account comes highly from Peter's perspective. And Peter, he was kind of that first one to speak up, right? He was always the, the one to speak his mind before he had really thought it all through. And so what do we find in the Gospel of Mark? It's the shortest, most succinct, and it uses this one word more than any of the other Gospels. Immediately. Immediately. It's a very fast-paced Gospel. Well, then you come to the Gospel of Luke. What do we know about Luke? Doctor. He was a doctor, okay? So it's because of Luke that we know some of the specific details about Christ's healing miracles. If it weren't for Luke, we wouldn't know that Peter cut the ear off of the, the Pharisee's assistant that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we wouldn't know that Jesus also healed the ear. Luke's the one who gives us that detail. So Luke paid attention to the healing details of Christ's ministry. And then we come to the Gospel of John, which is the most unique of them all. Now we're going to Matthew chapter 7, and verse 21 and 22. John is the most unique. It's the most different from all the other Gospels. The first three have more or less all the same stories. And John, it has a few overlapping stories, but it has more of 
the interactions recorded between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees as they're debating things, and it has more of the last hours of Christ than his last words to the disciples than any other of the Gospels, and it focuses centrally on the love of Christ. That's the focus of John. In fact, when you read John's epistles, 1 John, all about the love of God. John focuses on the love of God. So each of the Gospels, they bring a unique perspective. Today we're coming, though, to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to come down to verse 21. My Bible says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Okay? So there's going to be some people that come to Jesus at the end of time when the, when the role is called up yonder, when we would read later in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 tells us that there's going to be a day of judgment. There's going to be a day where the sheep and the goats are separated. And in that day, people are going to say, Lord, Lord, have I not prophesied in your name? Have I not done all these good things? That's why I asked the question, what do good Christians do? But is it really about what good Christians do? No, because we're going to see here that many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Verse 22. And in thy name have we not cast out devils? And in thy name have we not done many wonderful works? And then we get to verse 23. Then Jesus will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work, what? Iniquity. Pretty sobering words, right? I mean, to think that somebody could actually cast out demons in the name of Jesus and then in the day of final reckoning have Jesus say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. What do good Christians do? And he will say, Lord, Lord. Jesus will say, I never knew you. What does it mean to be a Christian? Loving, kind. There's that song. We sing it from time to time. Lord, I want to be a Christian where? In my heart. In my heart. You know, with my mouth I profess many things. I profess to be a Christian. But when my life doesn't match up with that, what does the Bible say I am? I'm a clinging symbol, right? Paul recognized this. The first answer that was given to me today, I think it was from Kenny. What do good Christians do? They love. Without love, we have absolutely nothing. And this strikes at the core of the issue because how do we even know love? We love Him because what? He first loved us, right? There's this redeeming aspect to the love of God that if we have not felt in our hearts, we're just going through the motions of Christianity. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. If I profess to be one thing and I'm not, humans, what do we do? We naturally look to each other and we compare ourselves and we think, well, man, if that person is supposed to be a Christian, instead of looking to Jesus, we're thinking, well, I'm not too bad off. What is the example? What is the message that we are preaching by the lives that we live? Come to me with the great epistle of James. James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Today's message is titled Redeeming the Rudder. Really, you could say actually making sure that our words match up with the life that we're living. And this is the great dilemma. We're humans. We fall short. But our God is in the business of redemption. Our God is in the business of saving to the uttermost. Notice this, it says in verse 2, For in many things we offend all. 
If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Think about that for a second. You know how easy it is to offend people today. I mean, it's just, it's our society. We're easily wounded over the dumbest things. We've never lived in a nation that's been more polarized and divided depending on which side of the current, quotes, issues that you stand on. It's easy to offend people even when you're not even trying to. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Verse 3, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, and they, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Behold also ships, which, though they be so great, are driven, so driven of fierce winds, yet... They are turned about with a very small rudder, whithersoever the captain wishes. Even so, the tongue is a little member of the body, but it boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members. So it defileth our whole body, setting on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire of hell. Then we come down to verse 8. And this reminds us of our, our real helplessness as human beings, right? Verse 8 says, Behold, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith we bless God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men that are made after the similitude of God, that are made after the image of God. And then it goes down to ask the question, out of the same mouth proceeds blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Doth a fountain send forth the same, of the same place sweet water and bitter? And we've been there. I've been there, you know. At one moment, you've been praising God in the next. You may not be outright cursing. Some of us don't struggle with that. Some of us do. But in the next moment, we might be doing or saying something that totally denies the same God that we were just moments ago praising. And this is the type of Christianity that Paul says is a loud, clanging symbol. Right? If we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and we review that great chapter on love. We may have the gift of prophecy. We may be able to speak with the tongue of men and of angels and though we have not charity, we have become as a sounding brass or a tingling cymbal. And though we have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though we have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity or love, I am nothing. Another word that you can slip in there. And if we have not Jesus, we are nothing. If we were to reflect on the history of Christianity, Protestantism, Adventism, the church today is not what it once was. The church in the day of Martin Luther was a movement. The Adventist church began as a movement. But now, churches today are becoming more and more like the world. Void of a real living experience with Jesus. We were once bold and daring, willing to spend and to be spent for the gospel's sake. We once raised up mission fields. We once raised up sanitariums. We once raised up publishing houses to spread the gospel. But today, and I would say it wouldn't matter which denomination you pick, but Today, I, I've experienced this just growing up within the Adventist church, if I'm speaking to my own personal experience. Today, if, if someone has a, a, a bold, possibly even expensive idea, or maybe it doesn't even have to be a bold, expensive idea. Maybe it's just a radical, simple idea. In harmony with biblical principle for furthering the cause of the gospel. I've seen it happened before where we as Christians will call those people 
crazy, unstable, reckless, foolish, and unwise. We've become comfortable in our slumber. In many cases, we aren't prepared to receive the people that would come through the doors of our churches if we were daily fulfilling the Great Commission, abiding in Christ. If you think about that, right? We've been given the Great Commission to go into all the world. Preaching the Gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, I love the Bible specificity, right? It's not just to every nation. And it's not just to every tribe, but it's also to every tongue, people, and language. Why is that? Because the Gospel could go into a certain part of the world. But within that country... You have tribes that won't even speak to each other. So God is so specific because the gospel has to go to every single person. And this is the calling of God's people to proclaim the everlasting love of Jesus, to shine forth the power of the cross. To allow the word of God to transform our lives. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What would happen if we as Christians lived that way? What would happen if I lived by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? You know, Kenny, you might have shared this last week, but I was thinking about it after we had a Bible study. I don't know if you shared this, but Kenny asked the question, how many verses are there in the Bible? How many are there? Okay, Kenny knows the answer. There's 31,102. How many of those 31,102 verses are true? All of them. All of them. Right? You know, it's interesting. So often we look at the Bible and, and the books like Daniel and Revelation, and, and we look at those books as books that are meant to reach those who don't know Jesus, and that's true. But we must realize that the rest of the Bible is is not just a revelation of future events before the end of the world to reach those who don't know Jesus. It's also a revelation of what God's children should be doing at the end of time before Jesus comes again. So many of the messages within this Bible is calling out the children of God, the professed children of God, for not being who they claim to be. And that's where it gets real when we're reading and, and, and the Bible says, I've got a dirty heart. And the only solution to that is a spiritual open heart surgery where God is allowed to take that stony heart out and to replace it with a living heart that is after the heart of God. At the end of time, those who will be a part of God's true remnant church will not be pew warmers who faithfully, they, they may pay their tithes and their offerings. And, and from time to time, right, in our, in our zealousness, at times we, we love to share our faith. And at other times, I don't know about you, but there's times where I've been ashamed to even call myself a Christian, you know? I was reading once about the, the blessing of keeping your Bible always with you. And there was a time where I would keep my Bible with me. And then there was a time where I was like still trying to keep the Bible with me, but I was kind of ashamed of the fact that I was Christian, so I'd kind of like hide it, you know? Do I really have this with me? But when we look at the life of, of Daniel, right, we have these men and these women that have, that have gone before us, right? And when we realize that, that we can't afford to hide our religion from our neighbors, community, friends, and family in the comfort and safety of our own home, when we realize that the remnant church of God will not and cannot shelter in place during earth's greatest crisis, we have to remind ourselves of the stories of the Bible. Remember Daniel and the lion's den. Why is the Bible story recorded? It's recorded for our edification and encouragement at the end of time that when the laws of man oppose the laws of God, we ought to obey God rather than man. Daniel could have hidden his religion in the closet. when the death decree was announced. But instead, when the decree was made that no man, should, no man or woman in Persia should worship any god save King Darius for 30 days. Now, it's always baffled me why 30 days, you know? Like, 
we're going to worship you, O king, for 30 days. <laughs> but when the decree was made that no one in Persia could worship any god save King Darius for 30 days, Daniel, what did he do? He opened his window as he always had. And my Bible says that he knelt down with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. I love that word early days because that means Mason, Wyatt, Lena, Kenley, Travis, Grace, Emily, my daughter, which is, is somewhere. From childhood, they had learned to talk to God. Why is this story here? Because there's coming a day where our faith is going to be tested. And we have these stories recorded because we're to take courage in the fact that when men and women who have gone before us were faced with the greatest trials, when their life was on the line, they did not cave. But they let Jesus shine through them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's the same story. They're going to be thrown into that fiery furnace. And because of their witness and their example, the king recognized that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ Himself, was walking in the midst of the fire with them. You know, many Christians today, they find it strange that the gospel might cost them their life. It's not something that we like to talk about. It's not something that we like to think about. We're happy with the comfortable Christianity, which doesn't include a lot of diversity. You know, in this land of liberty with little adversity, we're comfortable with the minimal diversity in our lives. We're comfortable keeping Jesus to ourselves. Normal, modern Christianity, Adventism is comfortable. And this is really what comfortable Adventism looks like. A regular church attender who faithfully pays their tithes and offerings and occasionally shares their faith with Jesus. And you know what, my friends? Jesus hates this type of Christianity. Jesus hates this professional, polished, good-looking, pious Adventism. Or Christianity, whatever you want to throw in there. And there's many verses, if we had time to break this down more fully to show this, but I'd like to go back to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 23 to just look at this in brief before we delve deeper to the cost of discipleship. What is it that we're really professing to be? Matthew 23 is a chapter that records several rebukes to the Pharisees and the scribes who were the religious leaders of the day, the people that were supposed to draw everyone to the true God of heaven. Now it's kind of this interesting verse because it goes on to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The scribes and the Pharisees, I mean, they, they were known for giving generously to the Lord. But remember the widow and the two mites? Who in the eyes of God gave more? Those two mites. God considered the two mites worth more than the abundance of the scribes and the Pharisees who were profiting off of the people in that day through religion. But from all intents and purposes, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were good. They paid tithe off of everything, off of the first fruits of everything, even their mint, their anise, and their cumin. And Jesus says, you ought to have done these things, but what? What was more important? That they would show justice. That they would show mercy. That they would show compassion. That they would actually love on the poor and the needy. That they would actually be that shining light that God had called them to be. Jesus didn't care that they were faithful in their tithes and offering. Jesus didn't care that they offered all the right sacrifices. It disgusted Him. 
because their heart wasn't in it. We could be going through all the outward motions of Christianity, speaking the cliches of Christianity, yet completely devoid of the redeeming power of Jesus in our lives. My friends, we have no time for a formal religion right now. Now is the time where we must count the cost and invite Jesus into every aspect of our lives. Remember that enthusiasm. Just think about that moment when you came to Jesus for the first time. Maybe it was at a revival. Maybe it was through 3ABN. Maybe it was a series. Maybe it was a friend that loved Jesus that was able to draw you closer to Him. I don't know. But remember that time, that enthusiasm, that zeal, that love, that excitement that you had for Jesus. And ask yourself the question. It's a personal reflection. Do I still have that same joy, that same passion, that same enthusiasm for God? You know, at times, I could say yes. And at other times, I know if I'm being honest and personal, that the answer isn't always yes. Why is the answer sometimes no, or maybe more often no than we want it to be? The Bible tells us something very interesting. Speaking of the church in Ephesus, it says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned your first love. Love. I love to picture this in the realm of marriage. For those of you who have experienced the joys of getting to know someone that you were intensely in love with, marriage is beautiful. But so often marriage is a wreck and a mess in this society today. But initially it's not. Those rose-tinted glasses, that woman can do no wrong. That man, he's handsome, he's charming. He's my knight in shining armor. And you do all these things together as you're getting to know. You go out on these dates. But then the sad reality of so many marriages is that that slowly starts to disappear after kids and a couple of years of marriage. We lose our first love that we once had. Those little things that we did for each other, we forget to do them. And it's the same in, the walk, in our walk with God. When, when we're first coming to Jesus, we're excited. We're like, man, I didn't even know that, that, that God loved me this much. And we're studying the Word of God and we're immersing ourselves. But then there comes that point where, where we're kind of just, maybe we're just checking off the list. Oh yeah, I, I got up and I, I read. But were we really reading to know what Jesus had to say for us that day? There's a story of a couple who celebrated their 82nd wedding anniversary. The husband was 103 years old and his wife was 100. And in an interview, they were asked, what is the secret to living long and keeping your marriage healthy? Mrs. Williams responded, just be nice to each other and keep doing the little things that drew you together. Isn't that some simple and good advice? The answer wasn't a book or a class or a counselor. It was simply being nice to each other and continuing to do the little things that drew you closer to your spouse. And our spiritual walk will find that finding our first love again is really that simple. Spending that quality, undistracted time in prayer, in Bible study with God and surrounding yourself with those who are like-minded, who can encourage you in your walk with God. It's not that complicated. But we got to come to God and, and open our hearts, desiring that He would speak to us. Now is the time to count the cost of discipleship. Luke chapter 14, as we begin to wrap up. Luke chapter 14 and verse 25 through 33, if you have your Bibles. The Bible says, Now great multitudes went with Him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. This, this sounds like a tall order that Jesus is asking. It sounds like he's telling us to hate everyone. But what is he really saying? What is Jesus trying to convey to us right here? If there's, he must be first. 
Jesus must be first, last, and best in everything. That's the bottom line. If anything takes the place of Christ, things are going to be out of whack. And why does this matter so much? Well, Matthew chapter 24 tells us that there's going to come a day, unfortunately, that families and friends are going to turn against each other. Because some are loving the world and some are loving Jesus. And families are going to be divided. If you aren't keeping Jesus first, you might be pulled away with your family. Kenny was just sharing the other day with me from Patriarchs and Prophets that Lot, had he not hesitated, right? In the Bible we read that he hesitates to leave. Had he not hesitated to leave Sodom, his wife would not have been lost. The power of our influence, the power of our example. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, The man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks ask the conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. A similar theme in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever will lose his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he achieves what is defined as success by the world standard? What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed. We're called to deny ourselves and pick up the cross. Now I've got a question. Can we bear the cross that we are called to bear on our own? No. No. No, we cannot. We cannot bear the cross unless we know the great cross bearer. We cannot bear the cross that we are called to bear unless we know the great cross bearer, Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus die for us? He died because He loved us. He died because He wanted to redeem us and save us from all sin. And Titus, he touches on this in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 through 15, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This is what the Bible tells us, that, that God is long-suffering with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But God will not force you to make that decision. Salvation has appeared to all men. It is freely offered to everyone, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed. He didn't die to save us from some sin. He died, he died to redeem us from every sin that he might purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Notice that the good works come not through our own strength, but after we have experienced the redeeming love of Jesus. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Jesus desires that each one of us would experience the redeeming love, that we would look upon Him who left heaven above, who left all the glory and splendor and chose to die for you and me, chose to come as a helpless babe, chose to live a life of self-denial, chose to bear the cross, to carry our sins. It's like David said, what is man that you are mindful of us? 
But God so loved the world that he gave. God's love led to action. You know, I love that the Bible tells us that he wants to redeem us from all lawlessness, sin, and iniquity. Jesus, my friends, he's not in the business of a half job. He died to save us and cleanse us from all our sins. And this is why we're told if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Redemption is total liberation from every sin that holds us shackled to this world. Redemption is that process by which you and I are trained for heaven. This training means a knowledge of Christ. It means emancipation from ideas, habits, and practices that have been gained in the school of the prince of darkness. The soul must be delivered from all that opposes loyalty to God. As long as there's breath in me, my friends, I want to praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord for the redeeming love of Jesus. You know, this year I've had the opportunity actually to teach Bible class at the church school in Ardmore. It's been fun. We've just been going over the simple gospel. We're learning about the life of Christ this year. And if I were to summarize it just very simply, the Bible says all have sinned. All need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus who died for us while we were still sinners. It's very important. Jesus died for each one of us while we were still sinners. So don't let anyone ever tell you or don't let the devil tell you that you have to wait to come to Jesus until you've got some things cleaned up in your life. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. All of us need a Savior. And while you and I were still in our sin, Jesus chose to die for you and me. That means we should come to Him right now just as we are. Jesus is coming soon and He wants to redeem every single one of us. He wants to redeem the rudder, that tongue. He wants us to to speak and live with Him. He wants us to know that we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We weren't redeemed with corruptible things, Peter says. No, we were redeemed through the everlasting blood of Jesus Christ. He wants us to realize that there's nothing of ourselves that we can do. In fact, all our promises that we make are like ropes of sand. Without Jesus, we have nothing. But with Christ, we can do all things. There's a story told about a man in Alaska. And I think it illustrates the beauty of redemption. And so we'll end here with this story. I was in Alaska with Fred one of my law firm partners doing a lawsuit clear out in the Aleutian Islands at the town of Dutch Harbor, interviewing a client by the name of Russ. We were getting ready to leave and head back to Anchorage and then on home, and I had a ticket in my pocket ready to get on the commercial flight back to Anchorage. When Russ turned to me and said, Dave, I could save you some money. I said, how's that? I have a Cessna 180, which I flew out here, and I use it here all the time. I can take you back to Anchorage and save you money, You can save your ticket. This did not sound good to me at all. I replied, thank you so much, but I'm going to take the commercial flight home. We already have our tickets. But Russ, he continued, he insisted, he says, no, 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 you've got to let me do this for you. Against my better judgment, I I finally said, okay. We went out to the airport and we walked up to the plane and as Russ began his pre-flight inspection, I noticed that it was shiny and clean. I thought, well, at least it... It looks like it's well taken care of. After the quick pre-flight inspection, we got in. And as we were getting ready to taxi out, I asked, can we pray? Russ said, well, yeah, that's a good idea. We normally don't, but go ahead. And I said, well, this time we're going to pray. And I prayed for about five to six minutes. I prayed a long time. We pulled out onto the runway and started down. The plane lifted off ever so gently and we started to climb. It was wonderful. Not a problem in the world up to now. The weather had been nice. There were some clouds and some sun. It was beautiful. But as we were flying about five minutes in, I noticed off in the distance a dark bank of clouds. Then, about ten minutes in, 
to the flight, something happened that I'll never forget. The pilot turned toward me with a funny look on his face when suddenly he began to say something and then his eyes rolled back and he passed out. I grabbed him and I shook him and I said, come on, Russ, you've got to wake up. I'm going to kill you. I don't know how to fly this plane. No response. Now we were in the clouds flying along without a pilot and Fred in the back seat said, we're dead, aren't we? I said, there's a very good chance of that, yes. Fred replied, what are we going to do? I responded, I don't know. But there was a radio right there, and I handed Fred the mic, and I said, start asking for help. Fred, he was in the backseat frantically trying to ask for help, shouting, hello, hello, is there anyone out there? Finally, somebody responded, and they said, hello, do you guys know any proper radio etiquette? I told Fred to tell him we're in trouble. We don't know anything about flying this plane, and we certainly know nothing about proper radio etiquette. The guy said, responded from the other plane, I'm a freighter flying out of Anchorage on my way to Tokyo. You're telling me that nobody in your plane can fly that plane. Fred said, that's correct. At this point, we were sweating bullets when the freighter replied, the first thing I'm going to do is start circling so I don't lose you. If I head for Tokyo, I will lose you soon, and you won't have me anymore. I'm going to get Anchorage Emergency for you, and Anchorage Emergency will be the people that can maybe help you, maybe even save your lives. After about five minutes, a man from Anchorage got on the line and said, we understand that you have a passed out pilot, and none of you know how to fly that plane. That's right. The man from Anchorage responded, well, the first thing we've got to do is find you. I'll never forget what this man at Anchorage said next. My job is to get you home safe. That's my job. Now tell me what kind of plane you're in. I replied, a Cessna 180. The good news is I have one of those, responded the man from Anchorage. I know the plane inside and out, and I will have no problem getting you home, but you must follow my instructions perfectly. Then he said, here's the deal. If you want me to get you home, you've got to promise that you will obey my voice. You can't see me, but I can see you. Then he went on to say, if you're not going to obey my voice, you're going to die. When you can't see anything and you have no idea how disoriented you become, finally he said, okay, I found you. Now hear me clear. You're four minutes from a mountain that you're going to run straight into if you don't correct course. You're going to crash and I if you don't follow my voice. I didn't even think of questioning his voice in that moment. I understood that without his voice, I had nothing. And do you understand, my friends, that without God's voice, you have nothing? Absolutely nothing. Without Jesus, you have nothing. Without the Word of God, we have nothing. Finally, he got us turned and he said, I'm freezing all the traffic I'm freezing all the traffic in your area. It's going to take an hour and a half for me to get you to Anchorage, and there's a lot of bad weather between you and Anchorage. You're in for a rough ride, and I want you to hear me. I don't want you to look around at what's going on outside. I don't want you to pay attention to the storm. Just listen to my voice. And I'm pausing. Most of this is this gentleman's own reflection. He's the one who's writing. You realize that Without God, you have nothing. He's the one actually writing that. But this is my own added part to this. So often we can get distracted in life by the storms, by the trials, by the things that are going wrong, and we take our eyes off Jesus. And I love that little part of this story. Don't focus on the storm. Listen to my voice. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, and they follow me. We want to be the people that are following the Lamb of God wherever He leads us. It goes on, he said, if, you're starting, if you start watching the storm, you will die, but I will take you through it. Now, because they had cleared all the traffic, several pilots and other 747 freighters started talking to us. They said, we're praying for you, men. You're going to make it, but you must listen to the voice. That's the key. They said, trust the voice. Do you realize in life that your head is full of voices and everybody in the world wants to talk to you? Everybody wants to be the controlling voice, but God says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to put yourself on the altar and let my voice be the only voice you hear. Finally, we went through the worst of the weather, but there was still more. The voice came back and he said, I'm going to line you up. 
He said, I'm going to bring you right down the center of the runway. And at the foot of the runway, there are some lights, and they are in the form of a cross. He said, don't forget this. The cross is the way home. Finally, he brings us down. We still can't see anything. All he kept saying is, stay with me. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Finally, just a couple hundred feet off the ground, we saw the cross at the end of the runway. I landed the plane. In fact, I landed it seven times before I finally got settled onto the runway. We were safe. We were stopped. And at that moment, the pilot woke up. And the voice said, thanks for listening. I watched them crash and burn all the time because they won't follow my voice. They don't understand that even when they can't see me, I can see them. But they get other voices in their head and they kill themselves. They self-destruct. Thanks for listening to my voice. That night they put us in a motel room and about four in the morning there was a knock on my door. I opened the door and there was a man standing. He said, hello, David. And I said, you're the voice that got me home. He said, I am. Do you understand that one day you're going to stand before Jesus and say, you were the voice. You were the voice that brought me home. All I can remember is that voice saying, stay with me. Stay with me. Don't listen to what's going on in your head. Don't watch the storm. Stay with me. I will take you through. Your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way Walk ye in it, Isaiah 30 and verse 21. Listen to the voice of God, even when it doesn't make sense. What a powerful story and object lesson. In life, we face storms. In life, we face trials. But the way home is listening to Jesus. Allowing Jesus to consume and take every sin away that we might be filled with the warmth of His love. It's not about what the Christian can do or what the good Christian should do. It's all about Jesus. Listening to His voice. That's what will allow us to stand at the end of time. And so we close with one of my favorites. It was actually our class song when I graduated from high school, I will follow thee, my Savior. Though the road be rough and thorny, I will follow thee. Though the waves around me are violent, I will follow thee, my Savior. Hymn number 623.